Hey, good morning, church. Good to see you. Well, uh, it's great to be back with the church family. Uh, took a couple of weeks off to welcome our third and newest addition, Eloise Jordan. There she is. Uh, super exciting. So yeah, getting caught up, coming back. It's great to, great to be here. So, hey, uh, speaking of babies, you all know how babies get here, right? You know how babies are made. Um, in case you don't, send an email to cpalmer at cnbc.org, and he will give you a detailed description of how that works. Um, anyway, I actually hope some of you do that. That would be pretty funny. Anyway, we are talking about sex this morning. So, uh, anyways, if there are younger ears here and uh, you are, are sensitive about that, you might want to, you, you can feel permission to hang out in the lobby for the first 10 minutes or so. But I don't think I'm going to say anything uh, that will rock too many worlds. So, let's get into this conversation. Let's talk about sex. Can I hear some salt and pepper? Anyway, all right, anyway. Uh, We are talking about this theme mostly because this is what emerges from Ephesians chapter 5, which is the part of scripture that we're on. We're going through the book of Ephesians line by line, verse by verse, and we are talking now about uh, sexuality, because that is what Paul is talking about. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, we will read that in just a minute. But I do have to say that uh, it's pretty easy to observe that our world is completely fascinated by sex, is it not? In fact, I would even go as far as to say that we're beyond fascination, right? We cannot get away from it, and thus we are actually haunted by sex and sexuality. That uh, it meets us on every uh, corner we go. You cannot go to the grocery store without passing about five magazines that are telling you you're missing out on about 900 ways of pleasing your spouse, right? We're like, what about like the one Anyway, so what, what are we doing wrong? And this is the thing about what sex has become. It's become a vehicle to sell you everything. You cannot get a cheeseburger or uh, hardly anything without a sexualized part of usually female anatomy being put in your face to get you to be convinced that their product is the product for you. And in our... In fact, actually, this week, my wife showed me... Um, Somewhere, I think, I don't remember where it was, but there was a, a salad dressing commercial with a full naked man, which is like the dressing over his middle part, right? I'm thinking, A, I'm not the target audience for that ad, but that is the grossest salad dressing now ever. Like, I don't, I don't want that. Anyway, ugh. so, you know, in our malaise of sexed up marketing, we are even more haunted, I think, sometimes by the messages that we've grown up with, right? By the experiences we've had, whether good or bad, painful or otherwise, the messages we've learned from our families and schools and even churches, and so often churches remain silent on the topic. And a lot of Christians are confused about sex and sexuality, as confused as anyone else. And some of the opinions range from seeing sex as dirty, bad, shameful. The anthropology here is essentially that people are angels, right? Uh, the physical stuff is bad stuff, and so it's actually a form of Gnosticism, which was condemned in the first couple centuries of the church, right? And so this view that this is really, the, our humanness is really bad, and you're to kind of get rid of that. Right? Or there's the kind of sexuality is just another appetite. Right? This is people are animals, just 
get into whatever uh, makes you happy. And so it's either a bad desire to suppress or a normal desire to just be given into in whatever way fulfills you and makes you feel good. And so for some, as soon as I said sex this morning, shame came over you because you've kind of been sold this, this lie that sex is actually not part of God's good creation, but it's part of the fall. And some of you... Like there's, there's no shame, there's just enjoyment. Or maybe there's excess and abuse. And so we end up confused. What do we do? What do we think about this? And that is exactly why it's a very good thing that we run into Paul, who tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 all kinds of very helpful things about how to navigate sexuality. Because he, he writes and, and lives in a first century world where his culture was equally obsessed with sex. Maybe even more so. Maybe even more outrightly so. And the reality is sexuality is not just a cultural issue. It is a human issue. And so Paul writes to us across centuries with just as much relevance as he did in his own day. Because, of course, his world made just as much of an idol out of sex as our own does. So, Let's get into the scripture this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV, and uh, you can follow along on the screen here if you don't have a Bible. Let's begin with verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord this morning. And as we get into this text, we quickly realize there are two very important categories to help us understand what's going on. The first category is light. The second is dark. Uh, now, as we process what it means to be human, which is to be made in God's image, right, which includes our sexuality, we have to reconcile these two opposing categories, light and dark. On the one hand, the damage and the hurt and the corruption of our sexuality under darkness, as well as the power and the beauty and the relationality of our sexuality in light. And so um, when I think of light and dark, I quickly go to my nerd self and think of Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans in the house? 
Good, right. I was going to bring my Darth Vader helmet this morning, but I thought, I'll pass, I guess. Anyways, another time. So, Star Wars, right? You think, um, this is this idea that there's this cosmic battle between light and dark. And the biblical idea is actually pretty different. Um, And, sorry, I just got an email from Groupon that just popped up. There we go. So anyway... (laughs) got to figure out how I can disable that while I'm preaching. So here we are, uh, Star Wars, right? There's this battle, of course, between the forces of darkness on one hand, but the biblical picture is different because it's darkness on one hand versus the God of light, who's actually the creator God, right? These are not two equal forces opposing each other. God is, in fact, the creator God and the redeemer God. John 1 says about Jesus Christ, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind, all people. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it, hasn't comprehended it. In other words, God's victory over darkness is certain. It's not final in its fullness, but it's certain. Dark loses. But in the dark side of the force, right? just like in the dark side of spirituality, there is this invitation to give in. Right? What darkness does is it urges us to give in to our kind of base urges. Remember that scene where the emperor says to Luke, right, give in to your anger, right? Give in to your hatred. And he's, no! Mark Hamill, kind of awful actor, but great scene. And there's this, within the spiritual realm, the spiritual forces of darkness say, give in, right, to whatever it is that actually makes you happy. Give in to whatever it is that seems fulfilling in this moment. Give in to what you want. And then what happens within darkness is that urge to give in actually is about displacing God. It says, remove God and make your desire God, essentially. This is the American dream, the American idol, what Eugene Peterson calls the new trinity of our wants, needs, and desires. God is replaced. Desire becomes ultimate. And in fact, you're evil if you're in the way of me fulfilling my desire. In fact, all that religious stuff that says, don't do this or don't do that, that is actually evil and bad because it's suppressing something. Well, that is certain degree of misunderstanding, but also a distortion, right? And so this morning, we're going to look at our sexual life through the lenses of Paul, right? Through the lenses Paul's asking us to look through, that is the lens of light and dark, and to help provide clarity, that is, what does God intend here? What's he about with this whole sex thing? And as well as to provide confidence, what, what are we free to? And what are the boundaries? But in order to understand that bit of sexuality, we understand, we need to understand what it is. It is, on one hand, a very powerful part of who we are. You cannot pull yourself apart from it. But on the other hand, it is not definitive of who we are. Our sexuality does not define us. And this is a key difference from the the story our culture is telling. The story our culture is telling is that, in fact, what you desire is who you are. You are effectively the sum total of your urges. That is your identity. And so we put a label on ourselves and we identify under a sexuality rather than identifying with something much bigger, much more robust, which is of being a whole person, made in God's image, redeemed through the God's Son. It's a huge mistake to make our sexual urges our identity. 
Right? It's actually a lessening, a diminishing of who we really are. It's actually an incredible lie that our culture is believing. So, to get into this, um, let's begin with verse 3. Right? In fact, verses 3 through 6 will teach us the effects of darkness. Um, and, and, and before actually we even get into verse 3, we've, we have to go back to verse 1. What's the context for what, what Paul's saying? Verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, hold on a second. One of the things that darkness does is it clouds our perception. Darkness essentially gives, uh, gives us an illusion. Light makes things clear and brings truth into perspective. And so with, within our own culture, one of the greatest illusions is the illusion of love, right? In our culture, what is love? Let me propose a definition, right? Culturally, love is essentially an intense longing, an intense attraction, intense desire. And if I don't have that for you, then I must not love you, right? It doesn't have to always be romantic, but it has to be an intense connection, right? Now, how does Jesus define love? Go back to verse 1 and 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Well, how did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us. Christ defines love through the lens of sacrifice. We define love through the lens of emotion and desire to possess. Now, what would your definition of lust be? I would propose to you that our definition of lust would be an intense longing, attraction, desire. Do you see what's happened? Our definition of love and lust have been swapped. And we've bought into the lie that lust is really love. And so when we're summoned to walk in love as Christ loved us, we have to get our thinking straight on what love really is. It's much more about what we do. It's about sacrifice, not necessarily what we feel in the moment. Now, with that in our heads, we can move forward into understanding why it is that Paul urges us not to do the opposite of walking in love, right? On one hand, he says, walk in love, be like Christ, self-sacrificing love. Now, stay away from its opposite, which is self-indulging lust. Look at verse 3 with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, the first thing we get here is that darkness um, creates a sexuality of consumerism. Let's see the next slide here. He throws out three words uh, after that. Let's keep, there we go. Sexuality here uh, that is uh, covered by darkness is, uh, he uses three words, sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. Now, sexual immorality, the word here in Greek is porneia. This is where we get our uh, word for porn from, right? And it, it essentially means any kind of sexually uh, sexual activity or fantasy outside of a marriage, that, a full range of things. I mean, I, I won't necessarily list all of them out because we could be here all day. So, 
full range of sexual activity and fantasy outside of marriage. The second word here is impurity. This is the kind of idea of deeper heart-level corruptions, like when Jesus says it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? And it's out, what comes out of the mouth is all, what makes someone unclean. And then the third word, covetousness or greed, which is this insatiable drive to acquire more and get more. Right? And in a sexual context, then it is uh, this drive to have more and oftentimes views somebody else's body as existing for my own gratification. So you put all these things together and you get a culture of consumerism where people are reduced down to commodities. And if you've been on the receiving end of that, you have been victimized and sex brings up pain and shame. Right? And if you are on the other side of it, then it is about power and control, which is exactly what porn offers our culture. See, it uses the vehicle of sex to deliver the real commodity, which is power, control, and exploitation. It's a $10 billion industry uh, in 2006, so it's probably more now, right? 13,000 films a year. Largest group of consumers there are teenage boys between the ages of 12 and 17. So dads, we've got work to do, right? We've got a teenage boy. It is time to get very real and transparent with him and be very aware of what's going on on their devices and computers and everything else. Okay? So, uh, however, uh, well, I know some of us, in a room of however many people there are in here, some of us are stuck here. Some of us are consuming sexuality through porn. But maybe a lot of us aren't, right? We have to keep in mind that porneia, this Greek word, actually means so much more than just viewing illicit sex acts through uh, the internet, right? In fact, um, porneia has this huge range of uh, any kind of behavior or fantasy outside of the boundaries God's given. And God has given very specific and clear boundaries for sexuality, right? And for sex in particular. Um, and in fact... Uh, God has assigned the specific boundaries of a covenant relationship between man and woman, what the Bible calls marriage. That is the biblical parameters for expression of sex. And God is only against porneia because he is so completely for covenant enjoyment, right? Covenant relationship. And anything that's headed in a direction away from that is porneia. Now, if you're out here acting out in porneia, you're summoned to turn around and head toward God's covenant designs, right? Now, again, keep in mind, lots of things fall under this word. You know, maybe you're just like browsing a little too long at the lingerie catalog that your wife got. And maybe you're hanging out with that guy at work a little bit more than you should because your husband's really not meeting that emotional need that you have. And maybe your desire for your spouse isn't even there at all, and so you're not really even entertaining anything about them anymore. Maybe you're not married, but uh, you don't have a context to express this, and you have to guard very carefully this powerful thing inside you. And maybe you uh, are living with somebody that isn't your spouse at all, and you're enjoying all the... the uh, the pleasures of covenant without any of the cost of a covenant. Maybe your nightly TV viewing, uh, you just call entertainment what the Bible calls porneia. 
maybe uh, you don't have anything to do with the porn industry, but you use sex as a, a, a power tool in your marriage to control and get what you want. You see, this is something that is very dangerous and, of course, um, very pervasive in our world. And so Paul says, this shouldn't even be named among you. Which is to say, this shouldn't be characteristic of you. This should not be definitive of you. This should not, in fact, be what outsiders see when they look in on the community of faith. I shouldn't see porneia. I shouldn't also see all impurity, right? This is where, again, uh, there's a deeper heart level of corruption. And then he also uses the word for greed or, or covetousness, which is kind of a cumbersome word here. And this is the kind of thing that drives our whole economy, right? Greed and the desire to get more and have more at uh, the expense of others. And morality here is completely tossed aside and instead profit becomes God. And when you put that in the sexual context, greed means I want more of for me. What do you think that does to a marriage? What do you think that does to a relationship? You see, this insatiable desire to have more for your own gratification is exactly opposite of what God intends when he blesses his creation in Genesis 1. So this darkened sexuality of greed, right, is this desire to have more and be more. And in fact, the, the more you entertain that, the more it messes with your brain. Uh, Stanford psychologist Philip Zimbardo did this great study on men's brains and how they're getting worse and worse and worse. It's actually, it's really scary. Um, He's like, men are becoming banana slugs, essentially. Because what's happened is with uh, the use of, I mean, anything ranging from like overuse of video games to uh, overuse of pornography, well, use of pornography, what happens is men are becoming more and more inclined to need new and different stimuli to just keep their attention, right? And so it becomes like this addiction to new and different and better. And what happens is that grows up a character of greed. Now, um, of course, this is this comes out of the Ten Commandments. You should not covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't look at you shouldn't look out at what somebody else has and say, "I want that for me." And it's not just about sexuality either. It's about everything. This is the Tenth Commandment. Not only should you not cover your neighbor's wife, but God says, hey, don't cover their houses, their servants, their oxen, their donkeys. Like, quit looking at people's oxen and saying, I need to get some of that for me. I know you struggled with that when you came in here this morning. I said, do I want that guy's cow? Or maybe I want that guy's beamer. Right? Mm-hmm, there it was. There's struck a chord. <clears throat> so, this isn't the only thing that Paul warns against. He says, when, when our sexuality is darkened, it creates a culture of consumerism where people are commodities. But also, watch out for your speech. Okay, because look, when, uh, when speech is darkened, it contaminates. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So Paul uses another three words here. Let's show the next slide. Um, when darkness is expressed in our speech, it shows up in filthiness, which is just general obscenity, or foolish talk. This is the, the language of someone without perspective or wisdom. And crude joking, these are literally the turns of phrase that... Um, are essentially just innuendos, right? And so he's still kind of talking about language that corrupts. Right? It's, the, it's the little jokes, it's the that's what she said comments 
that Paul's talking about here. And it creates a culture of corruption where words are really just careless. And the reason Paul is so intent on being, uh, on warning us of our words is because he says, when you turn um, any kind of like this sexual commodification into a joke, you make it okay, right? When, when, you, when you mock something, you're really kind of just saying, it's okay to do whatever we want, right? Because it's just a joke. We don't have to treat it with a great deal of respect. And so this darkened speech kind of contaminates. It says, rather than talking like this, right, what I need you to do is to use the language of thanksgiving. Now, this is so important to understanding what Paul is doing and, of course, what the whole of Scripture is saying, right? He's saying, rather than using language that makes any kind of sexual activity okay, right, just by mocking it and kind of reducing it, use the language of gratitude. And here's why. This is so important. When we, when we use the language of thanksgiving in relation to our sexuality, right, this is way more than being polite, right? Listen to this. Because the antidote to a consumeristic sexuality isn't to avoid or minimize our sexuality, but rather to have a, an attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving, okay? And here's why, right? Uh, it, it means that when we reflect on our sexuality, we're grateful to what God gives rather than trying to get more of what we want, right? So instead uh, of, of being greedy, we're actually saying, I'm happy to be content. And that's what the language of gratification affirms, okay? And so the best sex isn't looking for what I can get or how I can get more of or different. It's actually about mutual self-giving in a covenant relationship that's been sanctioned by God. And so in order to have the best, you have to be able to say thank you. And when you're saying thank you to God, you're actually saying, I submit to what you give. Do you get that? When we say thank you to God, we're saying I'm submitting to what you give. I'm not saying I want something else. We're saying thank you for what you've given. And if right now that means I, I don't have an expression for this because my desires don't go that way or because I don't have a marriage, we have to say thank you God for what you've given because you've given yourself to me and I trust that that's enough right now. Or in the context of our marriages, we say, thank you, God, because this is more than enough. Right? And so we're saying to God, I'll obey you. We're saying to our spouse, like, this is mutual. I'm receiving. I'm grateful. This is about commitment. Right? I'm saying I'm not the one in control. I'm not, I'm not pushing my agenda. Right? But I'm receiving what God gives and what my spouse offers. Right? And our thank you affirms contentment and says, this is good. It goes back to Genesis 1 and says, this is very good. So thank you. Okay? It's not shameful. It's to be received in obedience. And this is actually really exciting because when you say thank you, you can celebrate and you can enjoy. Right? And you can receive. But if this attitude doesn't characterize our, our approach to sexuality, guess what? You're not going to be happy because there's always going to be something else and something other and something better out there. Instead of gratefully receiving, you're always looking for your own thing. Now, Paul then turns our attention from darkness, though, to something very startling. So we've, we've looked at how darkness affects our speech, 
how it affects our sexuality. Now he says, look where it goes. It goes towards judgment. Verse 5, 4. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Whoa. Now we don't like to talk about wrath and judgment, but he's saying, look, these things reveal what's coming. This is a rejection of God. Right? The person who's actually characterized by this and not by repentance is somebody who is not participating in the rule and reign of Jesus. Right? They're shutting themselves out by what they love. Right? And, and they're not tuned into light, but they're tuned into their darkness. And judgment and wrath come on, on, on these. This is what the Bible's saying. And this doesn't mean, however, that the Jesus follower who sins in these ways loses their inheritance in the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He said in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit has sealed you as a guarantee of your inheritance. Guarantee of your inheritance. And then in chapter 4, he says, look, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Like, look, you are inheriting this kingdom, but don't grieve the Spirit. Okay, Don't live like the people who don't have the kingdom. Don't live like the people who don't have anything to live for beyond their own desire and urges. And Paul uses the present tense here, right? About the people who are walking in this way. And I know you guys really care about grammar, right? You came to church thinking, boy, I really hope he talks about sex and and grammar. Um, But the present tense, right, here means that those whose lives are characterized by these sins and not by repentance, they're currently excluded for the kingdom. That doesn't mean that they're forever excluded. Because when we turn and we repent and we embrace King Jesus, what happens? We get an inheritance. The Spirit comes into our life and creates new desires and a new self. But there's something here we have to understand about sin. So far we've kind of talked about it from the perspective of sexual sin. But Paul's getting to something deeper. The first thing we see in the definition of sin here is he mentions immorality, impurity, and greed, which means this. Sin is both external behavior, right? This is the immorality and impurity stuff, but it's also internal desires. This is greed, right? And now some churches are really good at saying, now, we really got to stay away from the sexual immorality stuff, but we don't, we don't really feel all that convicted about our materialism and greed. You know, it's like, oh, that's, that's fine. We don't even see that as a sin, right? But, the sex stuff. Don't do bad sex. Don't talk to me about my stuff. Right? Now, there's other churches that just hammer on the, the greed and materialism. Don't do that. This is unjust. Right? But this whole the sexual immorality stuff, that's just first century. It's archaic. Live any way you want to, but let's do justice. Right? And the Bible is saying you've got to hold both of these in tension. Right? Because it's both internal and external. Right? Because people our whole people, and we have to hold both of these in tension all the time. Now, here's the thing that Paul says, and this is the root of it. So the covetous person, so what is that? It's an idolater. Wow, that's, now this is the first commandment in the ten, right? So have no idols, right? Now, this is interesting because Paul's essentially saying, look, it's possible to behave very, very well on the outside, to have everything cleaned up and do do all the right things, fulfill God's law from your behavior perspective, but on the heart level, you can have very, very sinister motivation for doing it. Right? To have an idol is essentially to say, anytime I want something else other than God, more than God. I love something more than God. 
Um, I derive more meaning from, get more security and significance from something other than God. We've set up an idol. Right? And it's when we set up an idol in our lives that all the other stuff becomes very, very easy to participate in and justify. Right? If we set up desire and satisfaction as the ultimate idol, then the sexual immorality stuff is going to be really easy to fall into. If you say, my work is an idol, then neglecting your family is going to be really easy to do. Right? And so on and on and on it goes. And so here we are. We look at uh, what it means to be in darkness. Right? There's like the sexuality of consumerism, speech that's about contamination, and ultimately judgment because what we've done is we've rejected God and made something else God entirely. Right? Because sin is robust and it's external and it's internal and it comes from a place of moving God out and putting something else there. Then Paul says something so completely startling. He says this in verse 7. It says, therefore, do not be partners with them. Okay, we get that. Like, since, since that's not how we're supposed to beha- behave, don't do the things that uh, those folks are doing. It, says, it doesn't mean that you can't ever be friends with folks who live this way, but it means don't be partners. Don't join with them in what they're doing. And then he says this in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. That's the extent of, your, of sin. It goes beyond actions to the, our very existence, our nature. We were darkness. And that's why we're under uh, condemnation and judgment. It says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You were dark. Darkness, right? That's the extent of the power of sin. It goes beyond behavior. But he says, you're also, you're light now. It's not you were, you are dark and light. You were dark. Now you're light. You are light. Not just you are in the light. You are light. You are light this is your identity, not your urges, not your desires, not what you have, not where you work, not how your kids are doing. You are light in the Lord. Very, very important phrase. How is it that people have to wear sunglasses when they're around you? Why is it that you are so darn brilliant? Because you're light, aren't you? Why? In the Lord. Eloise is in Bowen. She can't get out of that. Right? That's her identity. We are in the Lord. Carl and I have been trying for weeks and months now to pound into our consciousness that we are in Christ. Our very identity is in Him. You're in Him, crucified with Him, raised with Him, seated with Him, walk in Him, stand in Him. Everything is in the sphere of Christ in our lives because we've been united with Him. Everything that is true of your identity is true in the sphere of Christ. And how can this be? Think about this illustration. You have this very plain, very poor orphan girl, right? She is in herself, penniless and not much to look at. And then this family, wealthy family, falls in love with her. And they adopt her and she becomes legally a child of of these parents. and, And she's changed forever, isn't she? They adorn her with new clothes. She looks amazing and she's wealthy. She has an inheritance. She has a future. In herself, she's plain and she's poor. In the love of the family, she's a sight. And she is utterly wealthy. It's a dim hint at who you are. You're so much more. You are light in the Lord. And this is how it works because 
We were darkness, but Christ went to the cross, absorbing darkness into himself. Christ rose from the dead, defeating darkness. Christ sent his spirit into our lives to create new life in us, the new life of light. We are light in the Lord. And so unless you see this, unless you see it this way, you're going to end up constantly between one of two poles. You're either going to feel all your darkness and you're going to feel shame and guilt and just kind of camp out there and that's who you think you are. You're always going to feel defeated and you're you're never going to be motivated to live righteously, to live like a child of light. Or if you view yourself only as light and you forget your history as one who was darkness, you were darkness, if you forget about that, you're not going to be on guard to darkness as it creeps in through the flesh. You need to understand this huge, huge difference between our truest and deepest desires and sometimes our very strongest desires. Because in the Lord, your truest, deepest desire is to do what's good and right and true. But in the flesh, sometimes our strongest desire in the moment is to do something else entirely. I might want to lie and cheat, but deep down in Christ, what I really want is the truth and I want to be generous. Right? So we have to live in a constant awareness of a real identity and you do that through focusing on Jesus himself right? and what he's done and who he is. And so <clears throat> we're in him, we're light in the Lord. And then he says, now walk as light. Light defines our lifestyle now. Right? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of these things. What fills your time? What do you focus on? Is it good? Is it right? Is it true? See, the fruit of light is. And, and so Paul says, now go back and think about what light looks like in every area of your life. Sure, your sexuality and everything else too. Your possessions, your words, your relationships. Now, we don't have time to get into a full-blown theology of sex, but i got to say, we are too focused sometimes on being against porneia. we got to be a, really for what God is about. Right? we got to be for a covenant expression of sexuality. And guard that and celebrate that and be okay with that before it anyway we got to keep moving through this though you see um paul says in fact don't participate in the deeds of darkness you got to actually expose it now this seems scary at first right like exposure like that's that's why i go to a big church actually so i can just kind of sneak in and out without being known (laughs) apparently that resonated with a few of you caught next time we talk about community groups i'm coming after you so here's the thing. The point of exposure is never to hurt. It's never to shame. It's always to redeem. It's always, always, always to bring the whole person into alignment with the whole will of God. Right? To bring our hearts into alignment with Jesus, the King. Which brings us then to the last verse here. Light is also our redemption Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You see, we're called to lovingly apply light to each other's lives. And that doesn't come in the context of saying, hey, you really blew it. What kind of person do you think you are? Oftentimes, it comes through very loving questions and say, I'm noticing a theme of darkness right now in relationship to this one area of your life. Tell me more about it. You know, uh, ask the kinds of questions that provide people 
a chance to locate themselves in the relationship with God. Like, hey, how's that working for you? Or where did you learn that? Or why are you believing that right now? Is it really true? So what's the hope for us? What's the hope for us to be people of light, to really live as children of light? Where do we really find that hope of being a changed person who was darkness and is light? To leave behind the sexuality of consumerism and the speech of contamination and a lifestyle that heads towards judgment, but actually to be living in an identity of light and a lifestyle of light ultimately comes from the redemption of Jesus himself, the source of light, right? We find our hope in allowing King Jesus to actually transform us from the inside out. The point of trusting him is to allow his light to shine into our darkness, to confess darkness. When Paul says this shouldn't even be named among you, he means it shouldn't be characterized among you. But there's another kind of naming, a right kind of naming, a naming that says this is where I'm at and I'm going to put a name on it. I've got darkness in my life in this area. I'm agreeing with God that it's dark. I'm agreeing with God that it's wrong and it needs to go. And I'm trusting Christ as he shines his redemptive love into my life. He'll transform me. Anything that is that becomes visible is light. What? That's a strange sentence, isn't it? Here's what I think Paul's saying. I think he's saying that when we allow Christ to expose our darkness, our weak places... And he actually transforms it and makes it a place of strength and beauty. Let me share an illustration here from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's a little, it might be a little bit out there for some of you, uh, but it's, it's a great little allegory of people being transformed on the journey into the kingdom of God. It's a really beautiful story. And, um, and on this journey, the author kind of runs into these characters and you get these little case studies and how God interacts in our lives. And so this one... The, the, uh, this one character uh, comes across the author's view, and he's this man who's kind of headed towards the kingdom, but he's got this lizard on his shoulder that keeps talking to him. And eventually he veers, and the lizard apparently represents lust or, or something like that. And, uh, and so the author witnesses this interaction between the man with the lizard on his shoulder and like this angel. Right? The angel says, I've got a way to silence that lizard. Right? I know how to deal with that. Can, you, would, would you mind if I did that? I said, sure, go ahead. Well, I, I'm going to have to kill it. May I kill it? And he says, well, honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm, I'm sure I will be able to keep it in order now. Right? The angel says, there's gradual processes of no use at all. Have I your permission? The angel said to the, to the ghost, right? The metaphor here is that he hasn't really grown into his full humanity yet. It's just a ghost of a person. He's weighed down by this lizard of sin. Have I, your, have, have I your permission to kill it? Oh, I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. I love that response. It won't, but supposing it did. And then the guy says, well, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. It's this recognition of, you're right, this is, I'm already dead. I'm under slavery to this thing, right? It would be better to be dead than to live with this. And so they go back and forth and back and forth for a while. And finally, the angel, I guess, kills this lizard and the man kind of disappears and then reemerges solid and human, right? Large. And the lizard, he says, at first he thought it didn't take effect because it was, he says, uh, in that moment, uh, it seemed to be struggling and growing bigger, right? And as it did, he says, I watched it changed. 
Its hinder parts became rounder, rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between... Uh, blah, 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 sorry. Uh, suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. You see, what Lewis is saying is, when Christ deals with our darkness, he turns it into something beautiful. So what ends up happening in the story is the man who was previously hounded by a lizard, right, offers it up to the Lord in surrender. It's killed, put to death, and it grows up into a horse, and the man gets on the horse and rides into the kingdom. Right? It's a beautiful metaphor. And uh, Lewis says this, What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared to that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. You see what Lewis is saying here? He's saying when Christ's light shines in our dark places of our hearts, whether that's an idolatry or sexual immorality and impurity, wherever that is, he says God takes the weak thing that previously was a stumbling block and uses its strength then for a growth and beauty, and transformation in your life. Right? The very stumbling block becomes something useful. Isn't that what we want, you guys? Isn't that what we want in our lives, the places of weakness and hurt? We, we want those to, to be killed off, don't we? And we want Christ to resurrect us, don't we? To resurrect our relationships, resurrect our sexuality, resurrect our financial Practices resurrect our self-images, resurrect us as whole people, to be turned over to the bright light of Jesus' love, to become transformed into something that grows us, and even becomes useful and carries us home. So maybe the darkness you carry with you today is something we talked about. Maybe it's a form of pornea. I want to invite you to allow Christ to shine there. This isn't about shame. It's about the reality of a fallen world and a good and gracious God restoring us to our full humanity. Ministries like Celebrate Recovery that meets at 7 o'clock on Tuesday night and love to help walk with you on a journey to freedom. Maybe you came in here with the darkness of idolatry. Maybe you are so enthralled with how good you are, you have very little need for God. Allow Christ to shine there, to recognize his grace is better than your best efforts. And we need him. And we worship him and not ourselves. We need Christ. So, two things you do this morning. You awake. Wake up and see reality for what it is. See darkness for what it is and see the light of the Lord for what it is. Be perceptive. What, what is God doing in your life? Maybe you came in here in utter darkness. You don't know the Lord today. Wake up. Hear his summons to a new life with him. Believe the gospel today. Jesus is Lord. He's crucified for your sin and he's raised from the dead. He's coming back. He wants a relationship with you to rule in your life, to transform you. Second thing we do is we arise. Not only do we awake, but we arise to allow Christ to shine on us, which means we move from our place of self-sufficiency where we have all the answers and we've got our thing managed. We arise and we do resurrection life. We allow Christ to raise us up, surrendering to him. Move from being stuck in yourself 
to moving in the identity that God has given you, which is light in the Lord. Okay? Let's take the Lord's Supper together, remembering, in fact, the very source of our light. Let's take the Lord's Supper together, remembering the pattern that Christ has given us, which is to walk in love as Christ loved us, offering ourselves up back to Him. Right? And so, as He gave Himself to us, we take in the elements of the bread and the cup to remind us of His love so we might walk out nourished, living as light. And uh, what you do today is just take the elements and take them on your own time as we sing a couple of songs about how God does turn darkness into light. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You and Your divine love have made us saints. That our truest identity is in our darkness, but it's in fact who we are in You. Not by our own works, but by your grace. Thank you that the deeds of darkness no longer hold the final word over us. Thank you that you give us all things for our good. Help us, Lord, to follow you and to submit to you in all things today. Amen. Let's take communion together.